0: Love Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict, count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn and the above-entitled action upon our oaths, do find the defendant as to count one, first-degree murder guilty. I've
1: been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. i have the right thing. Is clear and convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien, where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history, based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts.
2: This
1: time, the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information.
0: Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, Michael and I are back on Blog Talk Radio for episode 22, Clear and Convincing's Halloween special. First, Michael and I will talk about State of New York versus Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., which is a case involving the 1973 murders of six members of the DeFeo family in Amityville, Long Island, New York. DeFeo initially told police the shootings were carried out by mafia members. In a failed attempt at an insanity defense at trial, DeFeo claimed to have heard voices, to have been possessed, and that he killed his family in self-defense. DeFeo was convicted and sentenced to six 25-to-life terms in the New York Department of Corrections. Then we're going to talk about the haunted house claims made by George and Kathleen Lutz, who bought the Amityville house a year after the murders. Finally, we'll talk about the history of the house since 1977. We are a live show and now can take calls from listeners. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you? pretty good the theme we wanted to play the the joys of a live show sometimes things don't work out you just have to roll somewhere else
1: yeah gotta love uh being live I, i've heard yeah. it said before nothing can go wrong live but you know
0: it is what it is
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so oh well well maybe uh maybe if we take a little break we can get that that particular track i I picked it specially for this show.
1: Yeah, that was kind (laughs) of (laughs) cool.
0: So, all right. Well, we're back on Blog Talk. Um, Our video platform was nice, but it was just a little bit too unstable for me. Right. Um, As we, anybody who was listening last week, we apologize. I got kicked out multiple times. We are going to go back. And we are going to tackle George – not George. We are going to tackle John Stephen Gardner, uh, but it will be two weeks from tonight.
1: Absolutely. I can't wait to do that, too, because I was actually really looking forward to that episode, and then all sorts of craziness happened. We were at the mercy of Internet.
0: (laughs) So. All right. Well, um, and well, if I didn't have a desktop that was a thousand years old, I might have been able to plug directly into the Internet. But our desktop is uh, there's not even a camera on the monitor. That is how old the desktop is.
1: Right. You know, I, I feel. That. Um, <laughs>
0: so. So, you know, we may we may go back to it. Later, when I upgrade the desktop and monitor and everything in this office, because another reason that wasn't really workable for me was because Remy's home, right? And he's going to make guest appearances <laughs> if if I'm podcasting in the kitchen. <coughs> so absolutely. All righty. Well, let's get to. Uh, our Halloween special. Um, first of all, a character in the drama uh, that became known as the Amityville Horror is the house, which is located at the former 112 Ocean, Am- Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, which I believe is on the south shore <laughs> of Long Island. It's a very nice uh, bedroom community for Queens Brooklyn, New York, that area, New York City.
1: Right, um,
0: I and mean, I'm assuming they changed the address
1: because they didn't want people just fucking flooding the place, right?
0: Correct. They they did change the address, and and we'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit on, a little bit later on. Okay. Um, for reasons that will become obvious, it doesn't necessarily work. Uh, but one twelve Ocean Avenue, the land was farmland owned by the Ireland family. Uh huh. As far back as the records in Amityville go. Okay. In the nineteen twenties, uh, the Ireland sold a small. I think it's like it's like a three quarters of an acre tract. It's a long narrow lot. They sold that to the Monaghan family, and there was a cottage on the land at the time it was sold to the Monaghan's. The Monaghan's being a somewhat large family, a cottage was not going to cut it. So in 1924, the cottage was moved down the street. The Monaghan's moved into the cottage while a larger Dutch colonial house was built on the property. Um, Again, this was in 1924. The Monahan family actually owned the property until 1960, when Mr. and Mrs. Monahan died, and their daughter inherited the property at that point. Uh, Nothing bad had ever happened on the property. Nothing tragic had happened to anyone who had lived on the property. Um, while there are fake lore allegations about the cottage, the people living in the cottage having problems while it was on the property, it may have been a large family living in a small cottage, those type of problems that have nothing to do with the supernatural, just have a, a family too big for the for the residents that they're living in.
2: Right, absolutely. Um,
0: In 1960, after inheriting the property, the Moynihan's daughter sold the property to a family named Riley. Mm -hmm. And the Rileys lived there for about – in 1960 to about 1965 for five years. Uh, The the Rileys did end up getting a divorce, Um, but I, I highly doubt that that had anything to do with the property. Right. Uh, in 1965, a family from Brooklyn, uh, the DeFeos, purchased the property. They were a large family. The father was Ronald Joseph, Sr. He was born November 16, 1930. His parents were Rocco and Antoinette DeFeo. Um, his uncle Peter was in some way connected with the Genovese family. Uh-huh. but i i personally based on all the things i've read over the years and and all the research i've done over the years cuz this is i was 10 years old when this happened so i've had an interest in it for many years um i've always thought that uh ron senior and his father-in-law michael briganti were mafia adjacent they what? were never actually members they were never part of the Mafia or crew or family, they were just related to people who who were involved. Um, and you know when you when you go and go to New York, there is a lot there are a lot of Italian American families who despise the mafia and despise people involved with it because it gives them a bad name. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't ever, I don't think Ronald Joseph senior was ever involved. Um, I don't think his father was involved. Uh, I think they were associated only by his uncle Peter's involvement. Okay. Um, and then Ron, uh, Ronald we're going to call him Ronald senior. Uh his Cold wife was Louise Marie uh-huh Briganti. Her parents were Michael and Angelina or Angela Briganti. She was born November 3rd, 1931. Um also in Brooklyn. They were they were from Bro- Brooklyn. Um their oldest son was Ronald Jr. who became known as Butch. And he was born on September 26, 1951. Apparently, uh, Ron Sr. and Louise had to get married. At some point, Ron Sr. told Ron Jr., he ain't my kid. Although, we don't know whether that was true or not. I can't imagine, you know, Ron Sr., based on everything I've read... It, it it is it, it he but Ron senior had i don't think he was real happy right um, and so you know we'll get into that a little bit later but um and and there were a lot of there were a lot of issues between Ron senior and Butch
1: right right absolutely
0: personality clash issues um you know a lot of things and I don't see Ron Sr. marrying Louise if the child was not his, frankly. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, So, um, and then in 1956, their first daughter, Dawn Teresa, was born on July 29th. In 1961, daughter Allison Louise was born. In 1962, their second son, Mark Gregory, was born. And then finally in 1965, shortly after purchasing the house or moving into the house on Amityville in Amityville, uh, the youngest son, John Matthew, was born. So this was a huge growing family that went from an apartment in Brooklyn to a very large nice house on Amity in Amityville on Long Island. Um there is speculation and questions regarding how Ron Senior who worked as a manager at his father-in-law's Buick dealership on Coney Island Avenue mm-hmm. could afford a large Dutch colonial house because it was like a five-bedroom, five-bedroom house or six-bedroom mm. house. Um, however, in 1965, I don't imagine that property values and prices were that outrageous in New York City at that time. Right. I think this this purchase of this property predated the boom well, and I was about property to say, values
1: I mean, and, and prices. Yeah, we're not talking about we're not talking about New York City here. We're talking about you know, and it's not upstate
2: New York. I don't believe you
1: said it's Long Island, right? So it's on right, the of the city, but it's not the city. So correct. I don't even think prices are going to be as exorbitant as what you would expect them to be in the city.
0: Right. Um, so and Long Island. I, you know, some different communities in Long Island, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, you have upscale communities in Long Island, which Amityville was one. And then you have um, more white-collar, working-class, not a lot of working-class communities on Long Island. Long Island, I think, tends to be a little bit more of the middle class. Right, uh, right. Family, but it's yeah, homes and families. uh It's not like you know, but but I, I don't think it was at that time. I think now, if you want to buy a property on Long Island, good freaking luck.
1: Oh yeah, because uh, you're looking I at mean, probably. You're talking what? <laughs> forty forty
0: four years ago, roughly. Yeah, seventy
1: six. Right. Right.
0: The 65 was when they purchased it. Oh, 65. So they have
1: another 10 years. So you're talking over 50 years ago.
0: Hell yeah. Right. 55 years. Yeah. So um, the DeFeos were somewhat of a stereotypical Italian family. Um, They were very loud. They were a little showy. Uh, They were all a little on the hot tempered side. Um, Ron Sr. and Louise uh, there was some domestic violence in the family Uh, Ron kind of was the stereotypical iron-fisted patriarch of the family where he expected the kids to follow what he said without question at all times or suffer the consequences. And more likely than not, I mean, more likely than not, he learned from his family and his father. And his father was probably equally tough. What we see today as abuse or crossing the line back then would have been seen as discipline, and anybody who had a problem with it would have kept that to themselves. Um, I think there's also a tendency now, because Butch is the only living witness, there is a great tendency for exaggeration by Butch. Uh, Some of the things that I've read in my research that Butch did, I kind of understand why his dad beat his ass a few times. Right. If he, if he severely beat Dawn, you know, if that is a true story, if that happened and Butch severely beat his sister Dawn, who's five years younger than he is when they were teenagers,
2: uh-huh. I can
0: understand why dad would beat the crap out of Butch.
2: Hmm.
0: Not necessarily right, but I can understand. When your son beats your daughter up severely.
1: Yeah, you'd be pretty pissed.
0: You are gonna yeah. And and again, so you know, there are some times that and Butch was a nightmare. Butch was you know, he always complains even to this day about his father being such a bully, but guess what? Butch was a bully. Butch may have sure. been bullied in grade school but he became a bully in Jr. high and high school. Right. And he bullied other kids and he bullied weaker kids and he probably bullied all the siblings. Okay. I can only speculate but I really believe that he bullied all his siblings. Who were, you know, I mean John Matthew and Mark were a great deal younger than he was, you know, more than a decade. Um, So the turmoil in the family, I think, came to some degree from Butch's behavior. He was using drugs. He was drinking. He was stealing things. And he got caught with a, uh, in fact, shortly before the homicides, he was caught with a stolen outboard motor and of course his way of getting out of trouble was to lie through his teeth and his father had a you know a serious problem with it and I think that's another reason that I'm not so convinced that Ron Sr. was involved in the mafia or held any had any good feelings for mafia and that way of life because he was angry at Butch for stealing an outboard motor and be, having criminal charges and using drugs. And if he was in the mafia, he really wouldn't have cared. He would have been looking for how he could make money off that. You know? So right. I, I really think he, he had something of a moral compass. And wasn't necessarily right or doing the right thing all the time, but I think that he was trying his best. Uh, and, of course, one of the problems is that their, their attempts to rein Butch in involved saying, look, you can live here rent-free, we'll, we'll provide you with money, we'll feed you, you have no responsibilities. You have a job at the at the car lot, but if you don't want to go, you don't have to go. And we'll give you as much money as you want and anything you want, but you have to behave. And Butch is like going to take the money, but he's not going to behave. And he's going to continue doing what he wants to do and being violent with his family and being violent with his father and being violent with his siblings and being mm-hmm. violent with people in his life and, one of his friends said it was the drugs.
1: So, I mean we're talking we're talking the sixties. Is anybody really
0: surprised? Yeah, in the it's early seventies. This, pretty was, pretty this pretty was flowing was,
2: back then. Yeah.
0: Right. This was the, the early seventies and Butch was using he was using amphetamines because he had been overweight and he was trying to keep his weight down. He was using heroin. He was using LSD. Right. Um, he was using pie. He was using uh, mescaline. I mean, he and he was drinking a lot. He says, you know, according to him, he was drinking almost a fifth of scotch a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, alcohol is really when you have Underlying emotional problems. Alcohol is really the absolutely worst thing that you can pour onto those underlying alcohol, uh, underlying emotional problems. Um, Butch had gone to a psychiatrist as a teenager, and the psychiatrist at that time he was about fourteen um, found he had um, antisocial. It's not, it wasn't antisocial. It was um, it was a precursor of antisocial. So it's which antisocial
1: means, before they called it antisocial,
0: right? Exactly. And um, you know, he was passive aggressive with the therapist. He wouldn't come out and say he didn't want to be there, but he he acted like he didn't want to be there, and he didn't think he had a problem. And that's the biggest, you know, the biggest red flag is when you don't think you have a problem, that's when you you need fucking help, dude.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: So in November of 1974, the chaotic household uh, at 112 Ocean Avenue was not getting better. It was Mm -hmm. actually getting worse. Um, There was one point where Ron Sr. was... In a fight with either Louise or Dawn, the sources have, some have it with Louise and some have it with Dawn. Butch interceded by putting a shotgun to Ron Sr.'s head. He pulled the trigger, but the shotgun misfired. And Ron Sr. got religious, even more devout. Really quickly. In fact, if you look at some of the pictures, you can see religious statuary in the yard around the house outside, uh, and a lot right. of religious icon iconog- iconography and um, and stuff inside. And that was part of that was Ron Senior felt he had a devil on his back, and that right. devil was called Butch. And then a few days before the murder, uh, somebody at the car dealership, who frankly was a freaking idiot, decides to send Butch to the bank with a deposit of $1,800 in cash and about $20,000 in checks.
1: Yeah, give the druggie money. That's smart.
0: So Butch and a cohort decide that they're going to stage a robbery. And split the money, which they do. Two hours later, Butch comes back to the dealership claiming he was robbed. They call the police, and then Butch cops an attitude with the police. You know, that kind of uh, antisocial, everything I've just been through, and you're asking me all these questions, I can't believe you fucking idiots. Right. You know, it's like really not the way to exonerate yourself jackass um, and of course Ron Sr. was very angry about this again if Ron Sr. was mobbed up in the mafia if he was taking money, there's an allegation that he was taking money from his father-in-law by overbilling, well if he was doing all those things why isn't he going to Bush and saying where's my cut? You know, I'll keep well, this quiet, I'll take the heat off of you if you give me my cut my so, thing is I mean, this, though. Ron, if was, was, if Ron was Sr. was angry.
1: If he was mobbed up, this motherfucker would have probably been dead. Butch would have been dead by this point.
0: Well, Briganti, his grandfather, um, his grandfather stood by him even after he murdered his only daughter and you know, four of his five grandchildren. Um, You know, Briganti, uh, no matter what, Briganti probably would not have uh, would not have supported something happening to his grandson. But again, I'm talking about Ron Sr.'s reaction. Ron Sr. was angry, and Ron Sr. let Butch know how angry he was, which led to a threat by Butch that he was going to kill his old man. So, um, on November 12, 1974, Butch stayed home from work. He says he had stomach troubles that were exacerbated by stress. Uh, But he was a pretty heavy heroin user. Right. And if he couldn't get himself any heroin, you tend to get a little, you tend to get sick to your stomach when you can't. Use
1: right going through with so it
0: could have been withdrawal, uh, and I, I, I'm i more inclined to think it was withdrawal. Um, the family eats dinner that night, but Butch won't eat with them. Uh, they the family goes to bed, and Butch stays up on the second floor, uh, in a sitting room watching television, and the movie that he's watching is a movie called Castle Keep, which is a World War II film uh, basically about American soldiers who are forced to hold an impossible position. And the movie ends very violently with basically a massacre.
1: Well, damn.
0: Okay. Uh, So it's it's pretty bad. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometime around 3 o'clock in the morning, I think I I think my intro has 3.15, but it was probably closer to 3 a.m. Butch took his thirty-five caliber Marlin lever action uh, rifle and went through the house and began shooting his family members. He shot first Ron Sr. and his mother Louise in their bedroom. They were both shot in the back. Um, The... Trajectory suggests that Louise probably heard the shot that killed, the shots that killed Ron and was rising from bed when Butch shot her. Okay. And then the research again uh, is a little confusing because some accounts have Butch then going into Mark and John Matthews' room, right? And other accounts have him going first to Allison, his sister, his youngest sister's room. Uh, either way, um, Mark had been injured playing football, so he was using crutches and a wheelchair to walk. He either had a a back injury or a uh, a hip injury, and. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, his father was scheduled to be off work the next day to take Mark to the doctor. Hmm. Okay. Um, Both Mark and John Matthew were shot once in the back as they lay face down in bed. Uh, And then Butch went to Allison's room and there's also again the trajectory suggests that Allison had lifted her head and looked toward the door when she was shot. Damn. So uh, people say, how could he do this? And nobody heard him. Well, Louise and nope. Allison I may have hear. heard shots and were reacting to the shots when Butch shot them. Right. Uh and then finally uh, Dawn's room was on the third floor and Butch went upstairs to the third floor and killed Dawn. Then he gathered all the casings from the rifle in a pillowcase. Mm-hmm. He showered, disposed of his bloody clothing. He got dressed. He threw the gun into the uh Amityville River which was behind the house and then he heads toward Brooklyn stopping to dispose of the pillowcase and a few other pieces of evidence that he took from the house in a storm drain. Uh, When he gets to the dealership he goes to a diner across the street, he goes into work Um, he was basically, his story about what he did on November 13th, was all an effort to create an alibi. So you have to kind of take everything with a grain of salt. Um, I tend to believe only what can be corroborated. Like the time he came into the dealership is corroborated by the guy who let him into the dealership. Right. Who arrived and found him sleeping in his car and said, come on, Butch, let's go to work um he hung out at the dealership he pretended to try and get in touch with the family he pretended to be worried about the family not answering wondering what was going on uh he told different people different stories and then about noon he leaves work and goes to a girlfriend he mentions not being able to get in touch with the family to her he he tries calling the family, calling the house, et cetera, et cetera. Again, he's just trying to create an alibi, right? Okay, he's trying to make it look like he had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the murders of the six people in his house. Um, then he begins his afternoon of drinking and doing drugs. He buys himself some heroin. Uh, He shoots that up Uh, in the evening. He goes to a bar down the street from the house called Henry's Mm -hmm. and in Henry's, once again, he tells the sad tale of not being able to get in touch with his family. And he actually, I think tried to recruit people to go with him to the house and nobody was going to do that. Um, I don't think anybody took, he wanted, he wanted he wanted other people to... present with him when he found the bodies, okay, okay again, uh, it's uh, all yeah. setting up an alibi,
1: yeah it's all can...
0: trying to distance himself from the crime
1: yeah that and makes a um
0: sense. but i I get the impression from statements made by friends of his and 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 associates of his and peers of his that nobody really took butch all that seriously butch. Likes to think he was a big man on campus, but he really was just the village idiot in
1: uh-huh. most
0: everyone else's minds. Um so he leaves henry's, and interestingly enough, one of his own accounts he says he was gone for an hour, so maybe while he was gone, he had something else he had to clean up um, so he leaves finds his parents shot to death. Not any of his brothers and sisters, just his parents. Goes back to uh, Henry's and comes, you know, bursts in the door crying his eyes out because his parents had been shot. He just found them dead. Mm-hmm. So then people are like, you're shitting us, really? And then they go back to the house. Uh, interestingly enough, among the people going to the house that night, were people who, in later years, Butch was going to try to say, were either accomplices of his or accomplices of his sister. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into right. that a little bit later. So, um, so they all go back to one twelve Ocean Avenue. They find Mom and Dad. Uh, other people find Allison, Mark, and uh, John Matthew. A guy by the name of Yeswick calls 911 and calls the police and summons the police. The police arrive, and they begin their investigation. Uh, Initially, Butch tells police that a guy by the name of Tony Mazio, a 70-year-old man who was apparently friends with the family but had a falling out because of something Butch said or did to him, and who Butch Butch's father was angry because Butch had soured that relationship. Uh, so Tony Mazio came in and killed everybody. Mm-hmm. And then, when police didn't buy that, he said, okay, it was this mob hitman named Louis Fellini. Um, okay. And initially, police considered Butch a, a potential victim at the time. They believed that he came home and found his family dead. As they investigated, and um, uh, gathered evidence, they realized, first of all, the, sh- the the murders must have happened in the early hours of the morning because all the family were in bed in pajamas. Mm-hmm. And nobody showed any sign of having risen and started getting dressed and ready to go out or to have gotten dressed and been out. Mm -hmm. Um, So they they realized the murders did not happen during the day while Butch was gone. Um, Again, Butch tried to create an alibi, and, um, for example, he told police that when he got ready to leave for work, he heard the toilet flush, and he saw Mark's wheelchair outside the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So he tries to tell police at four o'clock in the morning, his brother, Mark used the toilet. Hmm.
2: Huh. Okay. Again,
0: impossible. Right. Um, because, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, Mark had been dead likely for around 45 minutes.
2: Mm uh-huh.
0: hmm. Um, why The police eventually remove Butch from 112 Ocean Avenue and take him to the police station where he'll be safer. And once okay. Butch is gone from the house and they continue searching, uh, one of the biggest clues they find is two rifle boxes in Butch's closet, in Butch's room. Right. When they ask Butch about these rifle boxes, he claims he knows nothing about guns. hmm However, one of his friends says, "Oh, that's not true. He's obsessed with them.
1: Ooh, He's got shit. a lot of them.
0: Right. When he can get his dad to give him money, he buys more. Who? Um, and so, after several hours of questioning, uh, there are allegations, or were allegations that it was in 1974, that it was uh, helped along. But frankly, you know, again, I don't really believe that. Butch DeFeo is yet another one of those people. I know you're going to be shocked and and amazed to hear me say this, but Mm -hmm. he's one of those people I would not believe him if his tongue came notarized. (laughs) Oh my goodness. We need we need all merchandise.
1: Right. We need to put that on a shirt. Well,
0: no, I can't I can't merchandise that because it belongs to Judge Marilyn Million. Oh darn. Okay. Hmm. But you know, hopefully someday somebody reports me using it and she appreciates it's the sincerest form of flattery. Well there we um, go. Yeah, so Butch I mean, he's a drug addict, they lie. He's got mm-hmm. all kind of personality disorders. He's gonna lie. Right. Uh, it, in fact, in an interview many years later, one of the things he said to the interviewer, in an interview at one point, when the interviewer brought up that he lied and tried to pin it on the mafia initially, was, Well, I didn't care who they blamed as long as they didn't blame me. Mm-hmm. So he's going to lie. Um hmm. And once he confessed, he admitted to killing the entire family. Um, He didn't really give him much of a reason at the time. Uh, But he also, after confessing, he gave police the location of the gun and the evidence that he had disposed of in the storm drain. And so that is a hallmark of a true confession because he led police to information they didn't already know. True, true. He gave them information they didn't already, I mean, if he hadn't told them, you know, where that evidence was, and that was, there was a rifle case, there were bullet casings, there were, um, uh, there were other. Um, he actually sanitized the house of anything gun related, except those boxes he left in his in his room. Idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, um, and the uh, the investigation uh, the they were able to determine that everyone in the family was shot with a rifle of a caliber and type consistent with the Marlin rifle. Which they recovered from the river, and bullets with, you know, casings, et cetera, in the storm drain were consistent with the rifle and consistent with the wounds, and there was only one gun used. Hmm, okay. Which makes it unlikely that there were multiple perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Because when you have one weapon, you don't have perpetrators sharing a weapon back and forth.
1: Right, I guess that makes sense.
0: Okay. Which single perpetrators have been known to use multiple weapons to make it look like multiple perpetrators, but let's not go there. (laughs) Yeah, that just seems like craziness. I mean, you know, you just kind of... I mean, I guess it is covering your
1: tracks, man. Yeah.
0: So, uh, after confessing, Butch was arrested, and he was charged... I I'm, I'm not sure whether it was a charge or an indictment of uh six counts of second degree murder. Now Butch in later years has said things that made it premeditated first degree murder. Mhm. But at the time the information in his confession uh they couldn't prove Premeditation, so they charged him with second degree murder. Uh, and there was a death penalty, so in New York, so he probably would have got it if they'd been able to charge first degree murder, right? Uh, so it was about a year, yeah. The only thing it was about,
1: the only thing that I asked is why did they try to raise some sort of psychosis um, defense?
0: Well, that was later at the trial, which occurred about a year later. Now, interestingly enough, for some period of time, his grandfather, Michael Briganti, um, hired attorneys and employed attorneys. Mm-hmm. Butch apparently threatened one of those attorneys because the attorneys were trying to come up with the best defense that they could. Well
1: damn that and wasn't
0: that smart. Insanity was one of those potential defenses, but Butch was not really crazy about that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh and and the attorneys were apparently not doing everything exactly the way Butch wanted them to do it. He again, he's He's got a Napoleon complex. He thinks he's a big man. Right. He right. thinks he's hot shit, and he's not. He thinks he's smarter than everybody else, but he's not. Right. Right. And so for a while, his grandfather was was bankrolling uh, attorneys, and that apparently, more likely than not, probably came to an end because of Butch's asshole ungrateful nature. Now the suspected motive behind this whole thing is that Butch just wanted everything he could get from inheriting from his parents. There were there were life insurance policy, there was the property, there was money, you know, anything he could get, he wanted right i I mean and that makes
1: sense
0: he so that was their that was their suspected uh, and I think that was another reason that he you know acted like the ungrateful prick that he was was because he was the prime suspect in the murders, it doesn't really look good for him pushing his inheritance rights, you yeah, know what true. I'm saying, but true when his family was trying to keep him from cutting off his nose to desp- despite his own face, he got angry. And of course his reaction is, you know, y'all are trying to steal this from me. It's like, no, we're trying to keep you out of prison, you dumb ass. Right. Um, right. So it took about a year. And again, there's conflicting information. The attorney that he went to trial with, some of the sources say that he was a public defender provided by the state, but others say he was he was also hired by uh Michael Briganti.
2: Hmm.
0: okay. So, okay. take that what you will. Uh his name was William Weber. Now, the prosecution had a very strong case in spite of a lack of forensic evidence. Of course, Within the house that Butch lived in, any forensic evidence in the house is going to be explained away. He lived there. You know, mm-hmm. Even if you found his pubic hair in his parents' bed or his sister's beds, he lived there. His clothes and their clothes were all washed in one big happy load. And so, you know, his hairs could be all over the place, and it's totally innocent. So, no forensic link to the murders doesn't really help. Him or hurt the state because anything the state would find, you know, they could find they could find his blood in John and Mark's room, and he'll say, "Oh, I broke a window." You know, he can explain it away. But they had the single weapon; they recovered the gun. The gun belonged to Butch. The box the gun came in was in Butch's room. They had his confession. You know, I I don't think they really... And they have six people dead, and he's the only one that walks out of the house that morning. eh, Well, you know, that's pretty strong. Those are pretty strong circumstances. So the defense by that point was basically insanity and possession, that there was something wrong with that house. Butch told stories of hearing noises and uh, voices and screaming and all kinds of things. And he actually claimed to have heard his family talking about getting him. And then black hands handed him the rifle and he went through the house killing everybody. Huh. Okay. Unfortunately, William Weber either thought that Butch was more competent than he was. And uh-huh. by competent, I mean smarter. Um, so Weber put Butch on the stand. And, and to a degree, he kind of had to because Butch is the only one who can... Say what he was thinking, what he was hearing, you know how, and maybe to look crazy and sound crazy and while he was in jail, butch was trying to you know be as crazy look crazy as there too, yeah um Get but it. it didn't work well because uh the prosecutor, Mr. Sullivan gets to cross examine butch. And then that's when, in any antisocial personality, that is when the antisocial comes out and sits down and freaks the jury out. Right. And shows the jury exactly who they're dealing with. And the same is true with Butch DeFeo uh the antisocial butch came out and the jury saw exactly who they were dealing with right so initially the jury did have a hard time uh coming to a unanimous verdict however some of butch's testimony apparently helped refresh their memories And not long after getting to review Butch's testimony, they came to a unanimous verdict, guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. In December of 1975, Butch was sentenced to 25 to life, six counts. However, at that time in 1974, New York law apparently did not allow for consecutive sentencing. Mm -hmm. So one count, 10 counts, 20 counts, 25 to life meant he would be eligible for parole by 1999. Okay. All right. So uh, that is, that's just the way New York law was at the time. So that is the, you know, the DeFeo's, um, the, the house was tied up in the DeFeo estate, and then it went on the market in 1975. Having been the site of a mass murder, I imagine that realtors had a little bit of a hard time. It, it probably was a tough sell.
1: I was about to say, uh, but it was, sure, though? Because there's some freaks out there that would like that shit.
0: Well, no, there are freaks out there now that would like that shit. In 1974, there probably were not quite as many freaks out there. The people, True. the freaks that were out there were freaks for a different reason.
1: <laughs> True.
0: Too shit, too so, shit. In um around July or august George and Kathleen no july nineteen seventy five George and Kathleen Lutz, who've both been married before and each have children by other marriages, uh they get married and they want to combine their two houses into one. so around december November, December, they go to see one twelve Ocean Avenue. When the realtor, after hooking them in and, and Kathleen, you know, Kathleen walks in the house and it's just like big smile on her face, eyes wide, loves the place. So, of course, the realtor knows she's got her. Mhm. So then after they've looked through the house and George and Kathleen have talked about what a wonderful house it is, uh, the realtor finally says, oh, by the way, I have to tell you this. Uh, a year ago, this guy murdered his whole family here. And oh, the literally. weird creepy thing is that some of the DeFeo's furniture was still in the house.
2: Oh shit.
0: So, I'm not sure exactly what, but um yeah. Uh and the price on the house had been reduced to
1: $80,000. I yeah.
0: And for a, a house that size in in that community, in Amityville, and even in 1974, that was pretty good. Right. So, um, so they they decided to buy the house and they move in the 18th or 19th of December.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean, the minute they move in, they start claiming all these supernatural events occur. Not when they're looking at the house, okay. Once they once it's theirs, once they sign that closing statement, then that's when the supernatural events occur. Um they claim that a priest who came to bless the house experienced a voice telling him to get out, flies in a an upstairs room that used to be John and Mark's room. Um they uh they claim a whole a whole cosmos of different supernatural, quote, supernatural events. Right. But they they kind of, to me, they're not that supernatural. Um, one of the things is George claims to have heard a marching band mm-hmm. in the early morning hours. Or late at night, quite sure which. He would be Hmm. the only one to ever hear it. And he would go downstairs and find all the furniture in the living room moved. Kathleen claimed to be touched, but nobody else in the house claimed to be touched. And in everything that I read, nobody claimed to see, like... Seeing somebody moving from one room to another out of the corner of your eye, which is a very common occurrence in haunted locations. Uh-huh. Uh Doors opening, drawers opening, and you know they never claim the typical poltergeist stuff of, you know, drawers in the kitchen opening and closing. Right. Um, they did claim things m- being moved. But they weren't really specific about what and and what circumstances and who it happened to. Mm -hmm. It's like one of the comments, and this is what leads me to suspect that this was not legitimate, is that they all – George and Kathleen have said it's like we were all living in a different house or we were each living in a different house. Okay. And usually when everybody's living in the same house and it's haunted – by the same thing everybody's experiences are more or less the same and some people even have the same experience when they're together right Um, George complained that he was cold all the time he complained he went through a personality change Uh, one day Kathleen discovered a red room in the basement which had been Mm -hmm. used as a storage room by the DeFeo's Mm-hmm. but she claimed it was hidden behind a bookshelf and that a foul smell emanated from that room. Um, Kathleen Kent claimed, however, to sometimes smell perfume. Uh, their daughter apparently made friends with a pig creature mm. that the daughter called Jody.
1: Okay. Uh, at,
0: at one point, and this was toward the end, George and Kathleen saw through a window, or or George or Kathleen, one or the other, saw through a window a red flying pig-eyed creature, pig creature, with red eyes hovering near the daughter. Wonderful. And then there was a window that slammed on one of the son's hands, and the hands were literally flattened. But then when they got him downstairs and were getting ready to leave for the emergency room, his hands were fine. So there was no hospital visit. What the fuck? One of the other things is, even though it was 1974, uh, they had these little disposable cameras. Nobody ever took a picture of, for example, these swarms of flies in the winter. Right. In this bedroom that was Kathleen's sewing room and nobody ever took a picture or tried to take a picture right um you know some the 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 whole red room you know Kathleen didn't get the camera and go take a picture of the bookshelf covering the door to the red room and then expose the red room and take a picture mhm you know um in later years, the experiences of the priest were debunked. Apparently, the priest only ever dealt with the Lutzes by phone and this is another interesting thing, okay. George Lutz was a non practicing Methodist
2: okay Kathleen
0: Lutz was a non practicing Catholic and had been raised Catholic and like a good Catholic girl had relatives who were priests and nuns, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but George is the one who contacted the priest to come bless the house. Right. Where does a non-practicing Methodist know a priest? I... Your guess is as good as mine. Okay. Uh, I don't know too many. I'm a a non-practicing Presbyterian. I don't know a single priest personally.
1: Yeah, me neither.
0: So um, at some point after fleeing the house, because they stayed for 28 days, and then they fled in the beginning of January or the second week of January. At some point after they fled, they went to William Weber the former attorney for Ronald DeFeo Jr., and met with him, and they felt that whatever was in that house must have influenced Butch to do what he did. Um, And George Lutz began contacting people to try to get people to investigate. He contacted a gentleman uh, by the name of Stephen Kaplan, who ran a parapsychical research society on Long Island. But he then backed out of having Mr. Kaplan investigate the house. And perhaps that's because Mr. Kaplan was asking him, searching questions and he could probably tell by each question that Mr. Kaplan was not quite buying his story. Because, for example, George Lutz talked about demons being in the house, uh, and he knew who they were, but he couldn't name their names because it would summon them. Hmm. Well, you know, if you knew nothing about the cult before you moved in this house and you've just been reading about it since your experiences in the house, how could you possibly know these things? He, George mentioned knowing a guy by the name of Ray Buckland, who was an expert on witchcraft. And while he had been on Long Island at one time, he had moved prior to 1974 to Salem, Massachusetts. But George Letts claimed to have had some kind of conversation with George Buck, with Ray Buckland. Hmm. So things weren't adding up for Mr. Kaplan. And Mr. Kaplan had assured Mr. Lutz that if this was a hoax, Mr. Kaplan would certainly expose it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, uh, of course, George and Kathleen Lutz claim that Mr. Kaplan's credentials just didn't check out. Sweet pie, I'm sorry, but you know what? Parapsychic, paranormal… Terra, whatever, Supernatural, nobody's freaking credentials are going to check out because there's no official straight, Hmm. legitimate, especially 1974, for obtaining any kind of credentialing. Most of it was fly by night, seat of your pants, investigating, reading books, learning hobby type so, right it, you know there was no there was no parapsychology department at any university in the United States during that time the 19 early 1970s is when that type of interest began to be peaked And then people like me in my generation started doing para, you know, getting, getting universities to have parapsychology departments and making them part of psychology and, you know, older people, you know, like my, my uncle's age started the ball rolling in legitimate research and education. But in 1974, there really wasn't any of that stuff. Um, So initially, William Weber wanted George and Kathleen Lutz to engage in a business venture with him writing a book about their experience. And if it helps Ronnie, it helps Ronnie, or it helps Butch. Uh, But William Weber's contract didn't meet George and Kathleen's uh, liking, Mm -hmm. more likely than not, because they were only going to get 12% of any profit. So they cut off their contact with William Weber and went out and found a writer by the name of Jay Anson and a publishing house by the name of Prentice Hall. They entered into a contract, and they were able to come up with a quite lucrative venture with Mr. Anson, which came to be known as the Amityville Horror. Right. Right. A phrase which was actually trademarked at some point by George Lutz, mm-hmm. and which then George Lutz sought to enforce his ownership through litigation. Now, while George Lutz, in various interviews and and things of that nature, claimed that you know the book really they didn't make a lot of money from the book. I mean, you move from New York State to San Diego, California, not exactly a cheap place to live.
1: Right. Um,
0: So I think you probably made a lot more money on the book than you want to admit. But litigation over the years actually probably brought them additional income because there are settlements. You know they reached a settlement with the film company that eventually made the Amityville horror movie. They reached a settlement with the film company that made non less authorized sequels to the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1976, they brought in Ed and Lorraine Warren for a Televised seance at the Amityville house, and of course Ed and Lorraine Warren, God rest their souls. Um, they were going to see demons and evil wherever they looked. Right. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> but that that's the that was the way they operated. You know, they couldn't go to a house and say, oh, gosh, it's just your mom, and she wants to make sure you're okay. And now that she knows you're okay, she's going to go on her merry little way. No, it's a demon, and it wants to kill you. Hmm. And we can get rid of it. Um hmm. So, okay. and Ed and Lorraine Warren, interestingly enough, uh, ed and Lorraine Lorraine Warren was a um, like a medium and she apparently encountered butch defeo's spirit in the house now I wonder how she could do this because butch defeo was alive and well and in a New York prison I think he was at he was either at Sullivan or, or Greenhaven or Dannemora at that time Huh. So okay. how can she how can she encounter Butch Defeo's spirit? True. I mean, well, okay, maybe he's like he's like got astral he knows how to astral project. I I mean duh. So um and of course and, and and this also with Ed and Lorraine Warren comes the fake lore. So um, and, and with some of these other mediums comes the fake lore. and I should have reached out to my friend Shannon Bradley Byers to come oh on and talk God, to us about be... fake lore, um, cool. because they can, they come up with you know the the people come up with uh, lore, for example, the lore about the Amityville property is that Shinnecock Indians resided in Amityville that the land on which the house was built was an Indian sanitarium where Indians would leave mad and dying people to be exposed to the elements so they would die. And then they would bury them face down. First of all, the different fake lore has different tribe names. Some say Shinnecock, others say uh, there are two different tribes from that Long Island area that they they named. Okay, so first of all, they can't even agree on the Indian tribe. And actually, Native American tribes, no matter what part of the country you're in, generally, actually, Native Americans were better with their young and their infirm and their elderly than Europeans, You know, uh, most native tribes, whether they were East Coast, whether they were Midwest, whether they were West, they looked at their infirm, their young, and their elderly as valuable, where Europeans generally did not. If you couldn't earn, you didn't mean anything. So a lot of the fake lore is... European values being converted and applied to Native American minds. Um, They also claim that a a gentleman by the name of John Ketchum, who escaped Salem during the witch trials, uh, built the house near the 112 Ocean Avenue house and, and practiced devil worship. That There's no, you know, there's no substantiation for any of that stuff. Uh, There was a Ketchum family about 10 miles from Amityville. There was a John, there were multiple John Ketchums, but, you know, one of them who did come from Massachusetts, but no evidence that he was involved with witchcraft in Massachusetts or devil worship in Long Island. Um. So also the the claims that the house is on an abandoned cemetery. Well, in 1913, a survey was done because some of the old churchyards and, and former cemeteries were falling into disrepair. And so a survey was done to know exactly where all those things were. And some were relocated. And none were found on that part of Amity. On that part of Amity, right by the river, That's the worst place for a cemetery because the proximity Hmm. to the water is going to, you know, lead to erosion of land and water table fluctuations. And, you know, I mean, we don't bury people in New Orleans because they'll pop back up.
1: Right, exactly.
0: You know, (laughs) because of the water table. Um, and that's because we have, you know, water under the, under the, uh, the, uh, ground and rivers uh-huh. and canals and all that crap. So anyway, so there, a lot of fake lore has come out and most of it is fake lore. Um, so, uh, There's also something about uh, Hans Holzer came in. He wrote a book, and that became a movie, Amityville to the Possession. Right. Um, And there was a story that his psychic medium said about an Indian chief having been buried on the property. His skull was found, and a white settler's son took the skull and used to play with it. Until the Indian chief came back from the dead and had his revenge and killed the little white settler boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, there's no evidence that that property was used as an Indian burial ground. Uh, Native American oral histories are actually pretty good. And there's no evidence that that part of Long Island was ever any type of burial ground for anybody. <laughs> Right. Native I mean, or, or European. Right. Um, and then they claim various demons. And, you know, I kind of take issue because some sources try to claim that Jody is one of the DeFeo children, possibly John Matthew. Um, but, you know, while the murders could have left some type of psychic impression on the on the house and while it's entirely possible that the souls of the victims were present for some period of time I don't think that it's fair or right to ascribe evil intent to a nine year old boy who was shot to death by his brother in a tragic act of violence. I, I don't hmm. think any of the family, even Ron Sr. in death should be ascribed with evil intent. Right. Because the circumstances of his death are not, you know I, I, I just I just don't think that's equitable. I don't think it's fair. But, but like i said I, I don't think it's fair to speculate that that evil pig creature is john matthew hmm. um very seeming yeah, yeah, mean, yeah, that, never... that. that doesn't make yeah. much sense to me right um you know again if 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 any of the victims souls remained in the on the property in the house more likely than not it would probably been a residual haunting right it would have probably been you know butch defeo reliving the murders over and over again or the victims reliving the murders over and over again um kind of like a tape on a on a continuous loop um they also claim various demons but they never quite name anybody so um hmm. You know, I like I said, I don't believe I, I don't believe that there was a swarm of flies in that room. No. I, um, I don't believe I mean, that well, there was a red-eyed pig creature. I mean, it, unfortunately, it's a good I think story,
1: the. But let's be honest.
0: Here. Yeah. think none of the shit real.
1: I don't believe. I mean, yeah. Of course, I can't speak to it a hundred percent, but come on now.
0: And again, what they uh, the gamut of what they claim to have experienced, very few things are what you normally see. I mean, watch a haunting. Right. And my personal opinion is even having watched a haunting, initially people are neutral, but then they start to get anxious and they start to get afraid and then the activity in the house changes and gets darker.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: I think part of that is because they're feeding negative energy. True. To whatever's there. I would agree. And, you know, if, if, you, if you find some, if you remain neutral, find something positive you know, like going in and saying, hi, I'm home from work. How was your day? You'll find probably that the activity will taper off or go to next to nothing. Right. Uh, But, again, I don't know. And then, like I said, Lorraine Warren claims to have seen Butch DeFeo, who is alive and well. Um, Interestingly enough, Butch DeFeo, ungrateful little son of a creep that he is, um, he disavows any claims about the haunting. He made statements that the house wasn't haunted. There were no voices. It was just him. He killed everybody. Um, he can't keep his story straight. Right. And so... um again after the after the Lutz's leave after 1976 the books and movies come out but interest in the general topic kind of wanes i mean i i got the second follow up book which is supposed to deal with the Lutz's experiences once they moved to california and their claims that whatever was in the house in amityville followed them um, which is funny I, I don't I don't think I ever finished that book.
1: Which is hilarious to me.
0: Uh, Yeah, I know. It's hilarious to me.
1: Because why the hell would it follow them if it's attached to the head? uh,
0: Right, exactly. And, you know, interestingly enough, the Lutz children, um, who were Kathleen's children from her first marriage... And I'm not going to name them. They're adult. They're adults now, but I'm not going to name them. Uh, I'm not going to open up that can of worms.
2: Mm-hmm. They
0: believe something happened when they lived there. However, they have each also said that George was into the occult, and at least one of them believes that what George was doing is what caused. Their experiences mm-hmm. in the house, and that makes sense if they continued having experiences when they moved to San Diego, California. Hmm. It's not okay. that house, George. It's whatever you're doing,
1: right? Whatever true. you're
0: dabbling in
1: you're is cuffed. not a good idea, right?
0: Correct. You are you're drawing something to you. Um, right. I, I, I don't think George or Kathleen ever got that because they claimed to have been tormented and uh, tried up to their deaths. Kathleen died in early 2000s and George died in 2006. Um, so in the 1990s uh. DeFeo, of course, in the late 1970s, DeFeo pursued his direct appeal. It was unanimously affirmed by the appellate court in New York without an opinion. Right. Um, So I don't know what issues he raised. Um, He also had state post-conviction claims. I know in one of his claims in the 1990s, He invented an alibi and an alibi witness. Mm -hmm. He apparently had um, met a woman named Geraldine Gates. They invented a story that they were married in 1974 and living in New Jersey.
2: Okay. Uh,
0: Which... Everything from 1974 completely refutes. Even his first statement to police, he says, I live at 112 Ocean Avenue with my parents and my siblings. Mm -hmm. And that's in his own hand, Butch DeFeo's own handwriting. Um, He invented an alibi witness by the name of Richard Romado, and he apparently told Geraldine that that was her brother. Um, She was apparently adopted in the early 40s and didn't have any kind of birth certificate or any kind of paperwork. So basically DeFeo was going to use that to invent a brother for her, and that brother was with him when uh, Dawn DeFeo killed everybody. And then Butch killed Dawn in self-defense. That was the story that he invented. Wow. Okay. Um, He uses the fact that a 1974 report refers to unburned gunpowder found on Dawn. The report Uh does not say where that unburned gunpowder was found. He says it was found on the front of her nightgown. Or alternately, mm-hmm. he says it was found on her hands. Actually, again, the report does not say where it was found, but even that it was found, it doesn't mean she fired a weapon. It means she was in proximity to a weapon when it was fired.
1: Butch
0: DeFeo shot her point blank.
1: Yeah.
0: Therefore, that explains the unburned gunpowder. Right, and she was the last one shot, as well. Again, I there's not a lot of original source documentation, but mm-hmm. my understanding is everybody was shot at near point blank range.
1: Okay, yeah. So of course, there's going to be a little. So bit of red they're red.
0: all going to have gunpowder, especially right. from a rifle.
1: Right. Um, yeah. At
0: some point in the nineties he requested testing and I think in the two thousands he's tried to obtain DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh interestingly everybody but Louise had type A blood. Okay. And Louise had type O blood. Mm hmm. Um his request for testing and DNA testing was denied. Primarily because the length of time the evidence has been held by the time he asked was more than 20 years. But also the fact that there's no evidence that they have reference samples from any of the victims. Right. still in existence. So they can't you know reference the only person they can get a reference sample from is Butch nobody else in the family now they could probably you know familiarly relate say whether person you know the person whose blood they found was related to Butch or not but there's no guarantee of that either but dna True. wise they're going to have unknown dna that may or may not be related to Butch. Right. You know. Um, and, of course, you, you you come up with if what his father told him is true, then, you know, there's, there's going to be no relation between Butch and Ron Sr., Mark, or John Matthew. Mm-hmm. Because if Ron Sr. really wasn't Butch's father, then... Bush's Y chromosome is going to be different from Ron Senior, Mark, and John Matthew. Um, right. So that was that was denied. Butch moved on to federal habeas court. Um, he raised some ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, he wasn't really successful on anything. Um, he did everything pro se, and I think that, to a degree, hurts. Because a layperson gets stuck with how they think the case is and what they think they know proves, and they're usually percent wrong. Hmm. And so they fall short of proving whatever their claims are to the court, because they focus on the wrong pieces, because they think that those pieces prove their case. Um, And again, I mean, you know, as the, the state judge has said, Butch, he's told so many stories. He's told multiple stories about what happened. Right. I mean... In 1970, between 1974 and his trial in 1975, he told probably about eight or ten different stories. Some had Don involved, some had other accomplices. Some had shadowy figures that he couldn't identify. Um, In the 90s, he also tried to blame some of his friends uh, from that time period, uh, probably because they were either nowhere to be found by his investigators or they had actually died. And so they weren't around Mm -hmm. to defend themselves just as Dawn cannot defend herself. Uh, One of those people was a guy by the name of Bobby Kresge or Kelski. He was actually one of the people that went from Henry's to the house and was in the house finding the bodies before police arrived and right. in one of the accounts, he was actually after they found I think John Mark and um, uh, John Matthew and Mark, he actually was going to puke, and so they got his ass out the house quick. I find it really hard to believe that a person who had taken part in these murders,
2: first of all, have would even enter react. the
0: house ever again, but would have that reaction at yeah. all. Uh, And also because he was part of the group that found the bodies on the night of November 13th, he was heavily questioned by police. And he was a suspect by police Mm -hmm. because I think he supported um, Butch's attempts to get his confession um, suppressed by saying police beat him to try and get him to confess. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so, but, uh, yeah, nobody, again, nobody's ever produced any evidence that supports any of Butch's stories. And we have to remember, Butch has said, I didn't care who they blamed as long as it wasn't me. So, so I mean,
1: nineteen ninety nine. to know in my opinion.
0: Yeah, right. In in other words, you can't believe Butch DeFeo, even if his tongue came notarized. Exactly. Uh, In 1999, Butch became eligible for parole for the first time. He went before the New York Parole Board. Uh, He was telling the story about Don. Don wanting to kill the whole family. uh, Don getting him to shoot the parents. Leaving the house. Claims he went out and bought some heroin, came back. Dawn had killed Allison, John, Matthew, and Mark, and he got angry and he claims that he knocked Dawn out on her bed and then shot her. Well, again, the evidence, her position, is consistent with her being asleep in her bed. Got no injuries that are consistent with a struggle over a gun, a fight with Butch being struck and knocked unconscious by Butch. Uh, his parole was denied because he's not taken responsibility for his actions and yeah, an for his of crime.
1: At all.
0: He's he's still a danger. Yeah. He was eligible again in two thousand three, but for whatever reason, um, <coughs> uh, they didn't They didn't review in 2003. His next appearance was in 2005. This time he had uh, some kind of court claim. I think he was trying to get DNA testing. Uh, So he could not talk about the the subject of the murders. Uh, But his his request, again, was denied. Mm Mm-hmm. And then there are no. He may have come before the parole board again in the intervening years, but there's no transcripts readily available. In the early 2000s, a gentleman by the name of Rick Osona, or Suna, Osuna Arsuña um, Osuna he believes that there's massive police corruption, and that while Butch is probably culpable for the murders. Uh, Dawn definitely took part in them. Mm -hmm. And Butch didn't get a fair trial. And a lot of stuff was covered up to put Butch in prison. And he doesn't deserve to be there. So initially, I think Butch was going to cooperate with Rick. And then... He found out that Rick wasn't going to give him any money because the New York Son of Sam laws essentially prohibit. Right. It. And while I'm sure someone creative could find a way around it, I guess Rick Osuna wasn't creative enough to find a way around it. So Butch DeFeo turned on Rick Asuna and bit the hand that was trying to feed him by creating right. a story that might actually get him a good attorney who could go into court and maybe get at least his sentence reduced. Hmm, okay. Um but, you know, Butch, not a bright man. He called Ricasuna a fraud and he sicked a supposed wife on Ricasuna who then tried to make The Night the DeFeos Died a non-starter of a book, and apparently it was pretty much a non-starter of a book. Um, I didn't read it. I'm not a proponent of any of the theories that it has. While I think that there was probably corruption in 1974 in the law enforcement in Suffolk County, Um I, I don't think it really has any impact on Butch DeFeo's guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, there are allegations that Mr. Sullivan got a favorable judge. Weber was managing a campaign for a judge that was assigned to DeFeo's case when Weber when Weber initially took over. Um. While Sullivan perhaps didn't have an objection to that initially, then the judge started ruling favorably for DeFeo, suggesting Hmm. that the judge perhaps could not remain as impartial as he thought he could. So Hmm. Sullivan apparently got the judge to recuse himself and then got a new judge appointed who Sullivan felt more comfortable with. In 1974, it's probably it's really probably not something that was that unusual in criminal and civil cases. I mean, I I remember even in the early 90s going down and filing dummy lawsuits. Uh-huh, that you dismissed hmm. to get your real lawsuit in a better division,, hmm. and okay. a lot of attorneys did it now now it's harder to do probably could still be done if if anybody was stupid enough to try. But now, mm-hmm. whereas the system before, the stamp they used for the division, it would advance by one. Like if when they got in in the morning, if it started on A, the next one would be B, the next one would be C. Um, then now the computer systems actually, it's legitimate random. It's it's not legitimate. It's actual random algorithms. So if I file a case, it might be in division A and the person behind me might file a case. It ends up in L.
1: Hmm. You know,
0: and I can remember once waiting as line and asking everybody in front of me, what division was that? What division was that? And stepping out of line if it was a division we didn't want. Right. And then just waiting you know until it was going to be a division we would want so <laughs> like i said i mean you know that was something that you know human nature is to game the system
1: yeah absolutely you want to you want to stack the odds in your favor
0: um you know i think nowadays um the the way that it would have been handled if Sullivan didn't like the fact that that judge was now ruling in defeo's favor then you know a a the process of getting a different judge appointed would be different but in 1974 it wasn't and that's how court houses all across the United States worked It's how they worked federally it's how they worked you know statewide it's how they worked countywide um -hmm. but again and 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 that's something you know what a lot of the things that are raised and and this case is a prime example these are things that ronald DeFeo jr knew about at the time of his trial weber knew how the new judge got assigned if he had a problem with it he should have complained about it back in 1975 or he should have complained about it on his during his direct appeal. Right. Or his first state post conviction claim. The time to raise those issues and those questions was 1975, 1976, 1977. Raising them in 2002 is way too late. Very true. You know, because Anybody that can substantiate the claim is gone, right, so you don't even have any first hand not anybody with first hand knowledge of the claim mhm- so um so we'll we'll wrap up the show um the lead character again is the house at. Formerly 112 Ocean Avenue, the address was changed. However, unfortunately, because it's a narrow lot and because of the size of the house that was built, mm-hmm. the house does not sit with the front door facing the street. Right. The house is turned.
1: It. I've seen a somewhat so recent that, picture, uh, like 15 yeah. years ago.
0: The, the house is turned. that The front door faces the driveway. And so the side of the house, one side of the house faces the street. While there are a couple of other houses along Ocean Avenue situated similarly, probably because this was a farmland that was broken up Mm -hmm. into various lots, Um, I think one, that house is the only Dutch colonial. that is situated that way. So no matter what they change the address to, people are able to find it. Um, Neighbors do, however, if they're asked for directions, they will direct people in the wrong way. Um, And I hope that some of them direct them into the river. Mm -hmm. Are you still there, Michael? I'm still here. Okay, you you get quiet. It scares me.
1: I'm listening. All right, so I'm just listening. I apologize. I thought okay.
0: you could hear me. hmm mm-hmm. so, I'm sorry. So the history of the house. Uh, in 1977, uh, the Cromarties purchased the house for about fifty-five thousand dollars, which was half the assessed value. They lived in the house for around 10 years, and the only problem they ever had with the house was people intruding on their lives, looking for a haunted house. They had drunks who would scream in the middle of the night when the bars closed Mm -hmm. for Jody to come out. They had people that would yell expletives at them. they had people that would trespass on the property. They I mean, um this kind of comes with the territory though. Well, but you know that's
2: I know that's no, shitty, I don't think like, no matter real-
0: what no matter what gets into the public domain, I think once the if the has wanted to live there and give people tours of the house Mm-hmm. That was fine for them, right? But they fled. They they gave the house back to the bank, and the bank sold it. People who bought it and had a right to the quiet enjoyment of their property, right? Um, hey, the Cromarties you know did clear. attempt to that. engage in litigation at some point to try to, to you know to try to stop the notoriety.
1: I mean, I can agree. Oh, they weren't I successful. Just, I just, I'm, I'm just saying it's not surprising to me. Like, what can you expect? Like,
0: but a you, you know what, on. though, too, is that if you're going to go looking for a haunted house, you don't have to be an asshole about it. True. I've gone looking for haunted houses that I've heard about through my lifetime in different locations. But you know what? I don't, I'd look at the property from the street I don't yell and scream and holler at the people in the house. If the people don't want to engage with me, I don't engage with them and I'm not rude to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I mean, you, you have to be, think about it. If you lived in that house, how would you feel about, what you're doing to the people that live in that house now. So they lived there about 10 years. They left the house at one point and had a caretaker stay there. And then they were able to come back because the, some of the notoriety did die down. In 1987, um, Mrs. Cromarty's older son did die, but he had been ill. Uh-huh. It had nothing to do with the house. He had an illness or a disease or a traumatic injury or something that led to his his passing away. Um, they put the house up for sale. It was uh-huh. bought by a family named O'Neill. Right. They owned the house for about ten years until the property taxes in Amityville. Got so bad, it was like I think ten thousand dollars a year. Holy in shit. property taxes! And so they felt that their money could be better spent saving for their children's college education. So they put yeah. the house up for sale. Yeah, a gentleman by the name of Wilson bought it, he did extensive repairs and renovations. Mm-hmm. Um, he got a good price on it probably because it was not in pristine condition people. and you got to remember the house was built in 1924 right so when the Cromarties lived there there were all original windows you know there there had probably been a lot of cosmetic with the exterior shingles and and painting and and things of that nature but you know like the boathouse was sinking and It really needed to be rehabbed and renovated. And he did undertake uh, rehab and renovations. And he lived there and owned the house until 2010. And again, nothing bad happened at the house. Aside from the occasional idiot screaming for Jody because they drunk. Right. And then... um, he was able to sell the house for about nine hundred fifty thousand dollars in twenty ten, and it was purchased by a family by the name of Dantonio. Uh, they owned it for seven years and sold it to a private owner in twenty seventeen. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't. the The property value was not what it was in twenty ten, um, so they. Sold it at a loss. Uh, at nine hundred fifty thousand dollars, it could have been a mortgage they just could no longer afford. Okay. It could be property. It could have been property taxes because Amityville ain't cheap. Ten thousand dollars a pop. You damn right it could have been. <laughs> so, you know, ten thousand. No, ten thousand dollars a year.
1: Well, yeah, that's what taxes. I'm thinking though. You got ten thousand um, dollars. I ain't got ten thousand dollars. No, no, I mean
0: no. My property taxes, I pay my property taxes with my mortgage and my escrow. Thank God for the state of
1: Arkansas, because I don't think my property taxes have ever been over like
0: Maybe fifteen.
1: I mean, I've never been a homeowner, but
0: still. Well, yeah. That when you own a home, it's a little different. I think mine, I have an exemption up to the first seventy-five thousand. Mhm. And then um, I think mine are. Ooh, I want to say about sixteen hundred a year.
1: Well, I mean, even then, that's not ten freaking thousand.
0: No, it's, I mean, it's not any, as bad. No, you're getting a it's little not bit not more as money,
1: I guess, and you're getting a
0: little paid a little bit better in New York too, to adjust for the cost of living. Right, and. You know, a lot of the northeastern states, New York, Massachusetts, Delaware, Maryland, um, a lot of them, they have high property taxes, but they have little or no sales tax except Massachusetts. Um, they may not have an income tax. Uh You know, it's it's different. They kind of they make their money in property taxes, and not anywhere else. So, and in Louisiana, you're kind of there's sales taxes, there's income taxes, there's property taxes, there's you know business taxes, there's all kind of taxes. So, um, that is pretty much our Halloween show. Uh, Frankly. Personally, I mean, I read the Amityville Horror book. Um, I probably wholeheartedly believed it when I was a teenager. Uh, Now I don't. And now I wish George and Kathleen Lutz had sat down with the Cromartis, who were the first people to live in the house after they did. Right. To see what they had started and what they had done. Because I think George and Kathleen Lutz were always blissfully ignorant of that. Well
1: don't put it all on the Lutzes. Put some of it on put some of it on Butch
0: too. I yeah, mean, but I don't think I, don't think I don't think anything court. I don't think what Butch did aside from lying about having been possessed to plant a seed somewhere. Right. I don't think anything Butch did had anything to do with, because I don't, I think that, I think that the victims were able to thankfully pass on and move on and that they're not trapped in that house. And even if they were, again, I don't think that they would be malig- malicious or malignant or, or evil. Um, that they would be lost. Right. You know, at at worst. So, um, but yeah, that's our that's our Halloween show. Uh, I kind of enjoyed that. I'll have to I'll have to see if I, I can know. find other <laughs> other kind yeah. of. Cases that with a paranormal fun.
1: yeah hmm. we we can't exactly base all of them off of movies or anything, but definitely that was interesting,
0: yeah, and well, I think it's it's something like you know, like I said you the only the only exposure you would have is the two thousand five remake,
1: absolutely,
0: absolutely, which was actually further off the mark than the 1977 movie. Right. Uh, another interesting thing, the ni- all of the movies that have been filmed, not one of them has ever been filmed in Amityville because Amityville will not grant permits.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't either if I was to Amityville. film companies.
0: <laughs> So the the nineteen seventy I guess it's nineteen seventy eight movie with James Brolin and Margot Kidder that was mm-hmm. filmed in New Jersey
2: <laughs> in a Joy. you know in
0: a Dutch colonial similar to this uh, to the Dutch colonial at one twelve Ocean Avenue.
2: Right. Um,
0: the later movies were filmed at different parts of uh, New Jersey and and New York with mm-hmm. similar Dutch colonials. Um, And then the 2005 movie was filmed in Illinois and Wisconsin. Hmm. Okay. And the 2005 film is so far off the mark that it shows the house as being isolated when, in fact, the real house sits within Amityville proper. So it's got houses on both sides. And across okay. the street. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and as far as I know, Butch DeFeo is still alive and well in New York State prison. Uh, like I said, he's probably come up for parole a few more times since 2005. It looks like there's a like a four-year cycle. But none of his other parole hearings have ever made it. Um, He wants to convince people that he's not, you know, that the only person he killed is Dawn. And that's because she was going to kill him. Right. But I think he just doesn't want to admit that he killed his four younger siblings who, you know, didn't do anything to him. Right. Other than... Other than perhaps, I mean, you know, I imagine, you know, Mark and John Matthew and Allison and Don were each probably more successful kids than he was. Uh, Don was getting ready to graduate high school and go to college. True, true. You know, Allison, Allison hadn't been expelled from school. Mark played football. John Matthew hadn't been expelled from school. So none of, you know, none of his siblings were behavioral problems like he was. Good point. Good point. And while Senior was tough on the kids, on all of the kids, Mm -hmm. I think he probably had less reason to be tough with Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John Matthew.
1: Okay.
0: So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the show uh- oh, so um when we when we leave out tonight, let's try and see if you can play that that music. the intro okay. the, yeah, that I wanted to play for the intro tonight, so all right, well, let's put a bow on this one and get get her done. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearingconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L.A.N. Join Michael and special guest host Sean Castleberry on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 23, Clearing Convincing's Election Night Special. Michael and Sean will talk about results as they come in, current events, and the progression of the 2020 presidential election. I'll be back with Michael on Tuesday, November 10th, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for episode 24, where we will try to look at state of Texas versus John Stephen Gardner, and hopefully we'll be successful this time. Michael and I will talk about the case against Gardner for the murder of his estranged wife, Tammy, in 2005. Gardner's attorneys argued that a jury hearing about abandonment rage would have shown him mercy. Their attempts to mitigate Gardner's punishment were unsuccessful, and on January 15, 2020, Gardner was executed in Huntsville, Texas. Until then, have a great week, and stay safe, happy Halloween, and good night.